Chapter 12 of Rufus and Rose, or The Fortunes of Rough and Ready. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Taylor Rourke. Rufus and Rose, or The Fortunes of Rough and Ready, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Chapter 12. Martin's Luck Turns. Martin continued to watch for an hour or two, sitting in a doorway. At length, he was forced to conclude that Rufus had given him the slip, and this tended by no means to sweeten his temper. In fact, his position was not altogether a pleasant one. It was now past midnight, and having no money, he saw no other way than to spend the night in the street. Besides, he was hungry, and that was a complaint which was likely to get worse instead of better. As for Rufus, Martin had never before seen him so well-dressed, and it seemed clear that he was prospering. He's an ungrateful young rascal, muttered Martin, living in ease and comfort, while I am left to starve in the street. It would have been rather hard to tell what Rufus had to be grateful for, unless for the privilege which he had enjoyed for some time of helping support his stepfather. But Martin persuaded himself that he was ungrateful and undutiful, and grew indignant over his fancied wrongs as he lay back in discomfort on the stone step which he had selected as his resting place. The night passed slowly away, and when the morning light came, Martin got up, very stiff and sore, and more hungry than ever, and began to wonder where he was likely to get any breakfast. Begging seemed to him, on the whole, the easiest way of getting along, but it was too early for that. After a while, however, the street began to be peopled, and he walked up to a gentleman who was approaching, and, assuming a look which he thought indicative of wretchedness, whined out, Would you be willing to help a poor man, sir? The gentleman stopped. So you are poor, he said. Yes, said Martin. I have been very unfortunate. Why don't you work? I can't find any work to do, answered Martin. Haven't you got any friends to help you? They've all turned against me, said Martin. Even my own children have turned me out of the house to shift for myself. How old are your children? asked the other. Martin hesitated, for this question was a little embarrassing. One of them is sixteen, he said. A son? Yes. Did you support him, or did he support you, was the natural inquiry. I supported him, said Martin, but he's an undutiful, ungrateful scamp, and... Then it appears that he has relieved you from taking care of him, and you have only yourself to provide for. 
It appears to me that you ought to get along better than before. If I could get any work. What sort of work do you want to do? If I had a few dollars, I could set up in some light business. You will have to apply elsewhere for the money, my friend, said the gentleman. To be frank with you, your appearance doesn't speak in your favor. And he walked on. That's the way the rich and prosperous treat the poor, soliloquized Martin, feeling that the whole world was in a conspiracy against him. Those who undertake to live without work are very apt to arrive at such conclusions. Martin concluded, on the whole, that he wouldn't refer to being turned out of his house next time, as it might lead to embarrassing questions. He approached another gentleman and began with the same appeal for assistance. "'What's the matter? Can't you work?' was the reply. "'I've had a severe fit of sickness,' said Martin, forcing a cough. "'And I'm very feeble. I ain't had anything to eat for twenty-four hours, "'and I've got a wife and five little children dependent on me.' "'If that don't bring something,' thought Martin, "'nothing will. "'Where do you live?' "'Number 578, 24th Street,' answered Martin." glibly. Now the individual addressed was a gentleman of leisure, of a philanthropic turn of mind, and one who frequently visited the poor at their homes. Martin's story seemed pitiful, and he concluded to inquire into it. I'm sorry for you, he said. I'll go round with you and see your family, and see what can be done for them. This was just what Martin did not want. As the family he spoke of was entirely imaginary, it would only result in exposure and disappointment. Yet he knew not how to refuse. I'm much obliged to you, sir, he said. I'm afraid it would be too much trouble. No, I've nothing pressing for an hour. I always like to relieve the unfortunate. What shall I do? thought Martin as he walked by the side of the benevolent stranger. At length, an idea struck him. It isn't everybody that would be willing to risk going with me, he said. Why not? They'd be afraid to come. Why? What danger is there? My third child is most dead with the smallpox, answered Martin, with a very dejected look. Good heavens! Then I might have carried the infection home to my children, exclaimed the stranger in excitement. Then you won't go with me, asked Martin. Here, said the gentleman, producing fifty cents. Here's a little money. Take it, and I hope it'll do you good. I reckon it will, thought Martin, as he took the money. It'll buy me some breakfast, and a couple of cigars. That's a pretty good idea, having a child sick with the smallpox. I'll know what to do next time anybody wants to go home with me. As soon as Martin found himself in funds, he took measures to satisfy his appetite. He really had not eaten anything since the middle of the day previous.
and felt that he could do justice to a substantial breakfast. He walked along until he came to a restaurant where the prices seemed to be reasonable and went in. Seating himself at one of the tables, he gave his order, and presently a plate of meat and cup of coffee were placed before him. To these he devoted himself with such vigor that they were soon dispatched. Still, Martin's appetite was not satisfied. Much as he wanted a cigar, the claims of hunger were imperative, and he ordered breakfast to the extent of his resources. Opposite him at the table sat a man of middle age, with bushy whiskers and a scar on his left cheek. He wore a loose sack coat and a velvet vest. His thick, bunchy fingers displayed two large showy rings set with stones, probably imitation. He finished his breakfast before Martin, but still retained his seat and watched him rather attentively. Martin was too busily engaged to notice the scrutiny to which he was subjected. After sitting a while, the stranger drew out a cigar and, lighting it, began to smoke. This drew Martin's attention as the flavor of the cigar, which was a very good one, reached his nostrils, he began to feel a regret that he had not reserved a part of his funds for the purchase of a cigar. His opposite neighbor observed his look and, for a reason which will appear, saw fit to gratify Martin's desire. I don't like to smoke alone, he said, trying another cigar from his pocket. Won't you have a cigar? Thank you, said Martin, eagerly accepting it. You're very kind. Don't mention it. So you like to smoke? Light it by mine. Yes, said Martin. I like smoking, but I'm a poor man, and I can't afford to smoke as often as I want to. Been unfortunate, said the stranger, suggestively. Yes, said Martin. Luck's been against me. I couldn't get work to do. My family turned against me because I was poor. I've got two children living on the fat of the land, but one of them refused me a dollar last night and left me to sleep in the streets. Well, that's bad, said the other. He's an undutiful son, said Martin. Better luck by and by, said the stranger. Luck'll turn. It's likely. I wish it would turn pretty quick, said Martin. Spend my last cent for breakfast, and I don't know where I'm to get my dinner. The world owes every man a living, remarked the stranger, sententiously. So it does, said Martin. I don't see what's the use of being born at all, if you're going to starve afterwards. Very true. Now I'll tell you what my principle is. What is it? asked Martin, who was becoming interested in his companion. If the world owes me a living, and isn't disposed to pay up promptly, I think it's perfectly right for me to collect the debt any way I can. So do I, said Martin, though he didn't exactly see the other's drift. For instance, if I was starving, and my next neighbor was a baker, and had plenty of bread, the law of self-preservation justifies me in taking a loaf. 
without paying for it? Yes. If I haven't gotten any money to pay, I'm entitled to my share of food. And if others keep it from me, I have a right to help myself, haven't I? That's so, said Martin. Only it's dangerous. Of course, there is a risk about it. But then, there's a risk in starving, isn't there? I should think there was, said Martin. I thought we should agree pretty well. Now tell me what you propose to do. Perhaps I can assist you. I don't know what to do, said Martin. I can't get work. What do you do? I'm in business, said the stranger, evasively. Couldn't you give me a chance? That is, if it ain't hard work. I ain't so strong as I once was, and I ain't fit for hard work. Well, perhaps I may be able to do something for you, said the stranger. If you'll walk with me a little way, we'll smoke another cigar and talk it over. What do you say? Of course, Martin accepted the proposal with alacrity. He did not want to go back to his work as a carpenter, having lost all relish for honest industry. He would rather beg or do anything else for a living. He had a very indefinite idea of the nature of the proposal which was coming, but whatever it might be, he was not likely to be shocked at it. Here. Give me your check, said the stranger. He paid, therefore, from Martin's breakfast as well as his own, leaving that gentleman's fifty cents intact. Martin was not used to such attention and appreciated it. For the first time, he began to think that his luck had really turned. The two went out into the street together and were soon engaged in earnest conversation. End of chapter 12. Recording by Taylor Rourke.